everyone. Uh, this is Kara with the Sausage of Science. Uh, unfortunately, Chris is having some technical difficulties, so he won't be able to join us just yet, but let's hope that he will be soon. Today, we're doing our next installment of the Hackademic series, where we talk about topics in academia that we don't necessarily always discuss as in-depth or as out in the open as we would like. And today, we're going to be bringing on Dr. Susan Blown from the University of Notre Dame, and she will be talking about different ways of teaching, different pedagogies, different kinds of styles for both in the classroom teaching as well as how you handle, I guess, the, uh, the business end of things with grading or perhaps ungrading. Uh, and I have to give a big shout out to Dr. Mark Kissel at Appalachian State, uh, because he is really the one who turned me on to Susan's work and the, the wonderful things that she promotes. Uh, and I've implemented a great many of them in my classroom. So first, thank you so much for being willing to be interviewed for the Sausage of Science with our particular academic series. I really appreciate it. It's a pleasure. Thanks for asking. Yeah, no, of course. And we like to start almost all of our interviews the exact same way, which is to learn a little bit more about you and your kind of anthropology origin story, how you got involved in anthropology uh, and why you decided to pursue it as a career. How much time do we have? <laughs> you can take all the time you want, but I can't promise some of it won't be edited down. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. So I took my first anthropology class as a graduate student. Really? That's fascinating. Yeah. So then so, what did you go to grad school for initially? Chinese literature. Okay. But I started college as a physics major. I wanted to know how people thought. So I thought I was going to be a brain surgeon to open up people's heads and see what was in there. And then I decided I would study science. So I studied philosophy of science and history of science. And then I ended up in linguistics. All of these are actually quite related. Mm -hmm. but they don't sound like it. And then I took some Chinese when I was living in San Francisco while I dropped out of college. And then I liked Chinese. So I went to graduate mm -hmm. school in Chinese. I was writing a master's thesis. I took a class called Discourse Analysis, which was cross-listed in anthropology and linguistics. Mm. And I had already kind of discovered literary theory, which was related to philosophy of science in the sense that basically what I was learning about was culture, but I didn't know it at the time. Mm -hmm. And then I mm -hmm. took this discourse analysis class with Pete Becker, and those were my people. I've <laughs> and that was it. You were done. I that was it. I was done. <laughs> people were asking my questions. They had words for my thoughts. And so that's kind of been my home intellectually ever since. And so did you end up switching PhD programs? How did that work out? Thankfully, I was at a university that happened to have one of the best anthropology departments in the country, but I had to apply all over again, and I had to take the GRE, which they had kind of waived for my Chinese literature program, and they made me really show that I meant it. I had to have <laughs> interviews with people who dissuaded me. It was like a Jewish conversion where they're supposed to dissuade you three times. Um, and anyway, I ended up in anthropology and I'm glad I did. That is a really fasc fascinating story. We've heard so many interesting origin stories, but I think this might be the first where anthropology was introduced to you in grad school and you end up completely, and I shouldn't say completely switching tracks because you know what you did was still very, very related, but switching PhD programs because of that. That's, that's, that's a great story. Yeah. But as I said in the intro, Mark Kissel actually told me about you before I ever actually started at Notre Dame. And he kind of turned me on to some of your really interesting teaching methods. And so teaching pedagogy was not 
your original area of focus or study. And so I'm kind of wondering how you went from cultural linguistics to, you know, this really interesting take on teaching pedagogy and kind of switching everything up to what people are used to in the classroom. Yeah. So here's another long story, uh, but it makes sense to me. So each thing I do basically comes from some kind of curiosity I have. And then there's always some leftover question or some new question that emerges while I'm addressing the current question. So there's a very logical chain of connection between my first research on Chinese ethnicity and nationalism to my current fixation on higher ed pedagogy, but it's not obvious mm. because there are these intermediate steps. So when I studied Chinese ethnicity and nationalism, people in the majority ethnic group talked about the ethnic minorities as simple but honest, and they didn't mean that as a compliment. Mm. So I wanted to understand what people meant by truthfulness and deception. So that sent me to my next project, was in China, but also not China. I have a chapter on non-human primates and dogs and deception in mm. other species and other animals. But what is deception and why do some people deserve truthfulness and other people are expected to be deceived? And that led me to a question about plagiarism, because plagiarism is in some sense deceiving. It's challenging the relationship between the speaker and the words, which is something that deception also does. You're saying that the speaker is not the originator of the words or does not intend the content of the words to be authentically connected to the speaker. Mm. So there's the same really deep anthropological and theoretical question about the self and the behavior or the practice, the verbal behavior. Mm. So is the person who's originating the words the one who means them? And what does that mean? And what are the effects? And what are the reasons people choose to say certain things to certain people and other things to other people? Mm -hmm. So plagiarism in China was considered a serious problem. And I realized I didn't really understand plagiarism in the United States. So I began to study that. I also have a lot of interest in psychological anthropology. And we're interested in things like how a person becomes an adult in a particular society. So I was interested in childhood and adulthood and the role of school in the production of adults. So I wrote a book about plagiarism and college culture. Do people have to drink and do they have to um, have a kind of opposition between students and teachers? And what exactly is happening in the classroom that makes students willing to plagiarize? Why don't they want to do the work themselves? Hmm. What are their goals? What are they there for? So that set me to my current critique of what is going on in school. Why are they there? What are the motives? How does education work if students don't care about anything other than something like the grade? Mm -hmm. So that sent me to my last book, which is really about the mismatch in a very profoundly anthropological way between what we know about how humans learn and how formal education tends to be set up. So in some ways, we are forcing students to cut corners because we emphasize the outcomes, the credential, the grade, the credits, and so forth, rather than the content of what's happening in the classroom. So for me then, the challenge, since I did not quit my job 
The challenge was to figure out how to make the learning in the classroom align better with what we know about learning outside classrooms. And so that sent me off on this rather profound examination of my own pedagogical practices. But thankfully, there's a community out there, so I've, I haven't had to make it all up on my own. Well, that's really wonderful to hear. And let's also welcome Chris. Hi, Chris. Fortunately, since we know each other, it's less awkward to come in as one of the hosts of the program halfway through your interview and not have any idea where we are. But all I heard was, since I did not quit my job, and I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> Thankfully. <laughs> to build off what you just said, how do you look back on your original style of teaching to kind of how you've come, like your own personal journey? Can you tell us some of the differences there? Oh, the differences are profound. There was an article in the Chronicle of Higher Education this past summer, and the reporter did a lot of homework. She was trying to understand my own ungrading practices, where I don't give grades for things. And as part of the background, she wanted to know when I began this process of ungrading. And I realized it was gradual. And so I was beginning to introduce a few assignments that didn't have grades, or at least that I didn't share with the students. But I went back and I looked and I found some of my old rubrics and my old very precise calculations about participation in class and a day late as opposed to two days late. And none of those are things that I actually measure anymore. And I was a very conventional teacher in lots of ways. I really believed, and still I struggle with myself about this, to be honest, but I really believe that these subjects are really wonderful and important and students should be excited about them and they should also do all the reading and they should cite in anthropological format and they should really, really do more than I tell them to do. And I understand now so well all the reasons why they're not doing those. And so my challenge then is to relinquish some of my old practices mm -hmm. and align my current practices better with what we know about how people learn. So maybe you could walk us through very briefly, because again, I didn't ask you to do this. What are some of those issues that the way we're asking students to learn, which is not really working with them? So what are some of those problems that you're, you're trying to, to counteract? So as anthropologists, we know that humans are great learners. We learn to speak with nobody teaching us. People don't really believe that, but it's true. You know, nobody tells American English speakers that they can replace alveolar stops with glottal stops and flaps, and nobody tells American English speakers that we have subject verb object structures and all the stuff that very, very young children learn, they learn with nobody teaching them. Mm. And we learn to walk as members of our own societies, not by being trained and tested, but by participating in communities of practice with meaningful others and modeling our behavior on them, give, being given authentic tasks, being expected to be competent members of societies. Nobody is expecting that you can fail at breathing or you can fail at eating as an American or as a Samoan or as a Chinese person. You have to learn to be a member of your society. But when we bring people into classrooms, there's often an expectation that some people will fail. Some people will be bad at learning this stuff. They don't really have any motive necessarily for learning it, but they're told they have to do it. Mm. When humans are 
motivated intrinsically to learn things, they are very good at it. And they will push themselves beyond comfort to try something over and over again. If you watch a child learning to walk, they get themselves up again and again and again, and they fall down again and again and again, and eventually they learn what it takes to balance and to have this, I mean, they gain strength and they gain coordination and there's a maturation process, but also it's that they want to walk. And walking is something that we know doesn't happen uniformly across societies because environments are different and people have different expectations about autonomy and about danger and risk and things like that. So taking this insight about what great learners we are, why shouldn't I expect everybody in my class to be a great learner? Mm. The trick, though, is to recognize that they're not all beginning the same way. And maybe they're not all aiming to go to the same places. So why should everything be uniform? Why should I make the assumption that everybody is going to learn the way we make widgets so that I can kind of predict from the very beginning what the outcome is going to be and evaluate everything using exactly uniform standards? And I know there's an equity question which I take very seriously, but it's not equity if people aren't beginning the same to then expect them all to be the same at the end. So that's one example. Now, I apologize if this has been covered and having missed it, I'm familiar with some of the principles. Does this approach work in large lectures as well? Because I am thinking about equity in a large introductory class where we're at the end of the semester now and I see students failing who simply didn't come to the labs and complete a whole host of assignments. That's it. They did what they showed up, they participated in other ways, and I'm struggling with how to validate the effort they did put in. But then there's those students who did everything who were rewarding with the A for doing everything. Well, there are different philosophies of grading. I know grading and ungrading are really fascinating because they're so unintuitive, even though we don't grade people for walking and speaking and eating and all those other things that competent people know how to do. But there are a lot of different philosophies of ungrading, and some of them evaluate for effort and some evaluate only for outcomes. And that's a philosophical difference that people debate. And I'm editing a book that's coming out next year on ungrading. And the people in the book, some of them would say that the students who didn't do the labs didn't fulfill their part of the contract, so they would not be able to get an A. Others would say if they haven't learned the material, then they don't get an A. Mm. Alfie Cohen, a very influential writer about education, wrote a book called Punished by Rewards, and he argues that we should never grade on effort. Other people think that's not right. So it depends. I would rather actually push back beyond your particular struggle in this particular class and say, why are those students in that class? And what is it that's making them take a class that they're so lightly committed to? And what are the other pulls on their energy and attention? And why are we going to force them to take that class? And so I, I think the bigger structures are also problematic. Mm. And if we can't provide a meaningful, high-quality educational setting in the current structures, then the structures need to be changed. 
we can't be expected to help people learn very well if we've already made it impossible from the beginning. So I don't think that's actually true, but but I think it's worth asking about. So these are not eternal structures, these great big institutional megaliths or whatever. Those are things that we can also, as anthropologists, critique and question. But there are a lot of people who talk about learning and active learning, and they have found ways to introduce active learning techniques into large lecture courses, pausing, asking people to talk to their neighbor, to guess about an outcome of an experiment, to use clickers, to do all kinds of things, rather than just sit passively for an hour and a half and mm-hmm. talk at, sure. which we know doesn't actually produce deep meaningful learning. I guess to continue on that, since we've brought up ungrading now quite a bit, so we're going to jump through. How have your students responded to the ungrading method and both in, I guess, attitudes towards it and part of it would be your judgment on their learning and engagement through that style of class? Well, and you have to understand that my students are in a fairly conventional educational settings. So they are the people who have really thrived and been rewarded for doing conventional types of schooling. Some of them are really confused at the beginning, like what school is grades? That's all there is to it. And I have a chapter in my book, I Love Learning, I Hate School, that is basically about grades and In interview after interview, students told us the goal of school is to get good grades. So if you take away the grades, Mm -hmm. what's the point? And once I explain and demonstrate and illustrate through learning without focusing on assessment, and once we have meaningful conversations about what people are learning and producing and how it can be improved, and they do that, most of them really appreciate it. Some of them are thrilled. They say things like, for the first time I could focus on what I'm learning as opposed to the grade. I've had a handful over the years, and now I've done this for three and a half years. I've had a handful who resist. They think I'm not doing my job. And then I have a handful who do as little as possible because I'm not testing them and they have classes like organic chemistry where they are being tested and they see that the stakes are higher for them. Mm-hmm. That hurts my feelings, mm-hmm. <laughs> but but they're cheating themselves out of learning something. But if they were only doing it for the grade, it might not have been very meaningful learning anyway. Mm-hmm. I, I consider this a challenge, and I try to motivate the learning by finding things that are really interesting, making students responsible to each other for doing something, learning something, being part of a team or group or something like that. It's not always perfect. It's not always that people are sending me roses. Sometimes they don't really like it. And I've had people say, this semester in particular, I wish all my classes were like that because then I could focus on your class. Mm. But since they're not like that, I have to focus on the classes where the grading is stringent. And I fault the system for that, but I still don't believe that I should be motivating students by fear of a bad grade. Speaking of the system, because this might be uh, the first time that a number of our listeners have actually ever heard of ungrading or not having tests, could you explain how that works, especially because at the end of the semester, 
because of the system, you do have to enter a grade. Yes. Well, welcome to those of you who have never <laughs> thought about this before. You probably should have started, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Learning process. <laughs> yes. Well, in regular life, humans are given feedback on performance in all kinds of rich and diverse ways. If you are sewing something and it falls apart, you can tell that you didn't do a very good job when it falls apart. Adults need to know when they're doing something that's high quality and when it isn't. And it's better, I believe, educationally to prepare students to have internal values and standards rather than to wait passively for external values. There's a lot of research about the topic of motivation. And psychologists, education psychologists, have been studying for 50 years the ill effects of extrinsic motives like grades on learning and on self-efficacy and things like that. When the locus of control is outside the person, they will respond to whatever is being expected of them, but they won't necessarily enjoy it. They may resent it. They may cut corners. They do as little as possible for maximum reward, as opposed to intrinsic motivation, which is you do something because you need to learn it. You need to learn to cook because you have to feed yourself, or you like it because you like to cook, or you want to play the guitar, or you want to write a book, or you want to learn to take better photographs, or you want to do genealogies, or whatever it is. People are great at learning when they're motivated to learn. Introducing extrinsic motives like grades tends to tell people you wouldn't like this unless I rewarded you for it. And so I'm going to give you an A, or I'm going to give you a B plus. Not all students are, expect A's, although many of mine do. <laughs> the default grade is an A, and anything else has to be justified. There's also a lot of research about the lack of information that's provided when people get a letter grade or a number grade, mm -hmm. rather than actually explaining what is going on. So if somebody does something and maybe it had brilliant content and some of the structure was weak and maybe you average those things together and you say that's a B plus, it would be much more informative and much more educational to say you had brilliant content and the structure was weak, which actually is information students can learn and grow with. Mm -hmm. There's research that shows when you give people a narrative along with a letter grade, they completely disregard all of the narrative comments and focus only on the grade. Or the narrative comments are there only to justify the grade. So those are just some of the reasons why many of us now in not only higher ed, but K through 12 also have gone to gradeless systems, ungrading, degrading those sorts of things. So there's a whole movement around. And I kind of thought I made it up at first. And then I found there's <laughs> a whole community. And it's so much better to have a community because we can help each other. The other question is, since I'm in a conventional system, I'm not at Hampshire College, and I'm not at Evergreen State College, or any of the other dozens of colleges that have no grades, I do have to give my students a grade at the end of the semester, so we have meetings. I call them portfolio conferences. We actually have them midway through and then at the end of the semester, and they show me what they've done, and they evaluate it for themselves, and they try to explain, this is good quality, I learned a lot, here's how I showed my learning, and 
they suggest a grade, which I don't have to accept, although I usually do. Your point about community is a big one because I wonder how many people already do variations of this type of approach because of their own dissatisfaction with traditional teaching. I stumbled into variations. What you're describing reminds me of how I teach, honestly. And part of it is because when I started teaching, my kids were entering the school system and we visited all of the alternative schools of the, what I call Portlandia East, the New Paltz, New York area, and Sudbury was one that made a big impression on us. And I tried to introduce some of the principles of the Sudbury model, which is complete democracy from K to 12 into my classroom. And I basically, at upper, in upper level classes, tell them, you know, we have a few projects and everyone has an A, unless you just don't do the work, but we're not going to test. We're going to do these projects and we're going to teach each other. They work really well. And so I wonder, given that, like our students, many of our colleagues are probably in various places in their sort of approach to teaching and, and maybe models like this. What, what advice would you give to educators out there who want to take a step further into some sort of hybrid style? And then what are the pitfalls? Well, I'm glad you mentioned Sudbury Valley Schools because those are sort of the perfect model of learning in real life where there's no curriculum, there are no teachers, there's only learning, and it's all student-generated. I think a lot of people probably are unsatisfied with the conventional model. There's all kinds of complaining that happens all the time about students not learning. There are thousands of people on these lists about ungrading, going grade lists, and so forth. So there are a lot of people out there. One of the reasons I'm editing this book is to give it a kind of gravitas and a kind of weight so that people can see they're not alone. Hmm. But as Jesse Stommel, one of the authors in this book, writes, you don't have to go all or nothing right away. There are ways you can introduce alternative approaches. Maybe you don't grade everything. Maybe you take a couple assignments and you have people write them, maybe read each other's. It's better, I think, and I'm not always good at this, but to have an audience that is not just the teacher, mm. to have an authentic audience. Maybe they have to show it to their roommate. Maybe they show it to their parents or their aunt or something, so that there's some reason to do the work, not just for the grade for the teacher. Mm -hmm. There, Certainly we know there's a lot of emphasis now on active learning. There's a field called the Scholarship of Teaching and Learning, and it's a very robust field. It doesn't get a lot of respect, and it's not very well known. It's only been around 10 or 15 years or so. But People are doing a lot of research on all kinds of different techniques. So it's not that we're just making it up and winging it and being lazy and you know nonchalant. There are good reasons for doing a lot of things. Like what you were saying, project-based learning is a great way to learn because people have to generate an interest in something. They have to figure out a problem and then what figure out what is an answerable problem. And that's a skill that's not only useful in school, but it's useful in life. How do you actually figure something out? How do you convey what you've learned to other people? And so all of these rich dimensions are 
really valuable and they're fun. People can do podcasts, they can do infographics, they can do movies, they can do all kinds of things that are not just fluffy. They're actually the way a lot of people are, like our listeners, are getting their information these days. And somebody who is learning how to do those things in the sort of luxurious span of a semester are going to be much better prepared for life than somebody who's writing a five-paragraph essay and just ticking off the number of sources that are demanded by their mean teacher who's going to grade them. So I, I think the advice I would give is to really think deeply about what students are learning and why. Then you can actually trust the students to tell you why they're there. You can ask them what they need to learn, what they already know. If they're only doing what they're already good at, they're not learning. And if we put learning at the center, I truly believe, and I'm not a cynic on this, I, I truly believe that everybody will thrive if they are proud of something they're learning. And people are infinitely curious. Mammals are curious. Birds are curious. We want to know things, so we should tap into that. The idea that our students are, you know, dreading our classes is an indictment of the system. It's not an indictment of the individual students. You can make anything fascinating. I know people like to complain about things like calculus or organic chemistry or writing, but all of those things can be fabulous, and there are people doing great things in all those fields. So I think if our hypothetical colleague who wants to try something new is a little bit afraid, they can read some of the scholarship on teaching and learning. They can find some examples of people doing active learning. There are great websites from teaching and learning centers. Vanderbilt has a great one. Michigan has a great one. These are places where people have assembled wonderful examples of assignments or approaches or philosophies that really lead to deep and engaging and enjoyable learning. It's not just sitting around eating chocolate chip cookies. It can be, you know, really very all-encompassing because it's like real life. When we really learn something in real life, it's so satisfying. Mm. This semester, I implemented a lot of project-based learning where students did podcasts. They are building websites currently. They did infographics. They did hominin dating profiles, all of these things. And I've gotten nothing but actually really good feedback because it made them figure something out on their own and a skill that they're going to be using later on for something in life, which they never would have otherwise. And yeah, it's been a very positive experience for me. And there's one other thing I want to touch on before we start to wrap up is from the talk you gave in our department, oh goodness, like two months ago, you were talking about how classrooms are often set up in a very particular physical way. And I just kind of wanted to hear a little bit how you run your classroom uh, and any advice you might have for people who want to promote more active learning environments in the room that they are stuck with on whatever campus they are on. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> this is a pet peeve of mine. Our classrooms, generally, there's a lot of variation, a lot of diversity but generally speaking, our classrooms are constructed the same way medieval classrooms were constructed. They were constructed that way so that the lecturer, lecturer means like reader, could propound 
the content of books which were not available to people because they were too expensive. Mm. So the students would sit and they would listen to the lecturer who had the book and that person would tell them what was in the book. And that sort of dissemination, one to many, where one person, the sage on the stage, is the active person and everybody else is passively sitting there absorbing it, is still the dominant model for many, many classrooms. It's the way the rooms are set up. It's the way students come in expecting it to go. It's the way evaluations are often made of teaching. How was the lecture? Now you might have PowerPoint in addition to the lecture, but it's still the same model. The expert is the one who is telling the recipients some kind of content. Maybe there's a story, maybe there's an argument. It can be made more active and engaging and interesting, but it's still the model of one versus many. And if you have a classroom where the chairs are nailed to the floor and you have tables in a row, it is very hard to fight the classroom. I don't know, on my own campus, I don't know what percentage of classrooms are like that, Many now have movable tables. There's usually still a front of the room, which is hard to fight. I, I'm in a kind of active learning room right now, but there's still a front. There are many screens around the room, but only one of them is the main one. And so I rearrange the furniture in every classroom. The first thing I do when I scope out a room is to see how movable things are. And if I can, I request a room like that. Sometimes I get one, sometimes I don't. One colleague of mine at another school says she has students sitting on the floor. Mm. Sometimes they ask students, how do we solve this problem? And students can come up with some solutions. But I like to get people moving in the room because there's research on the scholarship of teaching and learning shows that there's social and emotional learning. And I also like to add the bodily dimension of it. And so when you get people moving kinesthetically, they have a much deeper memory of what they're doing. And it's multimodal and it's much more likely to matter to them. So you can get people putting post-its on the wall. You can get people going out in the hallway and observing something. You can have people in small groups. You can have people in partnerships. I, I did something yesterday in class where I had students writing answers to some questions based on some reading and thinking they had done. And then I gave them numbers in Chinese and they had to find the person that matched theirs. And then they had to talk about that. And then they had to answer a question. It was actually about language origins. Um, and then they had to write on the board what they thought were the origins of language. But there are lots of great things you can do. You can have people bring in something physical. You can have people acting things out. You can have people standing up. There are all kinds of ways you can get people moving. I think it's really critical the beginning of a semester to have the students' voices heard so that the students recognize that they are essential to the learning that's happening in the classroom that it's not going to be just the professor. And that has to start the first day. So I try on the first day not to give a syllabus if I can, because I try to get them to see that it's not business as usual. I've also tried having no syllabus. That hasn't gone very well. <laughs> um, 
Especially I, when the university makes you put one in six months ahead of time before you even know what you're teaching. Well, but that's actually another question I have. Um, traditional universities that you have grades, grades are highly important, but I mean, the data is really in, I'll say you, but I know it's a larger community. The data is in your favor of employing these sort of ungrading methods and alternative teaching styles, but that's pushing back against, you know, the machine. So do you have any advice to make especially untenured folks feel something better about going against the grain on this? So I know the power is real and um, people's positions are real and there are untenured faculty, there are contingent faculty, there are grad students, many people who feel vulnerable and they are sometimes told, no, you cannot do that. And that is a very difficult situation to be in. John Warner is a columnist for the publication Inside Higher Ed, and he has a column called Just Visiting, and he talks about how he was freer as a contingent faculty member to try these things because it didn't matter. Nobody was ever going to evaluate him for tenure, and he did all kinds of things. I like to think that in most departments, there's somebody who's open-minded and willing to champion the junior faculty based on research. If the students are learning, it's hard for me to believe, although I do believe it, that people would be so fixated on the structure that they would rather have the structure than learning. But I, I, I understand that that's the case. And some people I know teach in teams, some people are given a syllabus, they just have to implement it, they don't have any autonomy or any sort of agency at all. And for those people, I think it's worth trying to de-center grades, as Alfie Cohn says, as much as possible to talk about learning, to connect it to people's real lives and real goals, to make it about their humanity and, and their honor as a learner. And I know it's really hard to do, but I, I think if people are learning, they will be appreciative and happy. And I think it's worth fighting, but I understand that it's a really hard fight. Well, I have to say that this was probably one, I've had personal conversations with you. And so I know how helpful that's been. And so I, I very much hope that this interview will be helpful to those who are planning their winter semester, or I should say spring. We always like to wrap up our interviews with a fun question, uh, and that is a little bit more personal of what you do for fun, what you might be reading or watching for fun right now when you're not necessarily working. So I read all the time. I discovered television about eight years ago or so. My favorite TV show is probably The West Wing, which I watch um, to comfort myself from time to time. I watched Parenthood with my daughters, or mm -hmm. in parallel. We weren't in the same place, but we liked that one. I'm watching The Crown with my husband. Oh. Fleabag is on my list. I've heard that's really good. I read probably four books a month for mm -hmm. fun, although I'm, I'm working through Allen Ginsberg's biography now, and it's mm -hmm. 800 pages or something, so, <laughs> so I, I'm reading that as well as other things. Do you have a particular kind of fiction you like? I, I like literary fiction, but I also write fiction, and one of the things I've been intrigued by are mystery novels and the structure that they 
provide. So I've been reading Louise Penny. I don't know this. Yeah. Oh, she is really fantastic. She has a series of mystery novels set in Quebec, mm -hmm. at Quebec province. And apparently Hillary Clinton turned to her novels for comfort after she lost the election. I just read J.K. Rowling's pseudonymous um, Robert Galbraith book. So apparently after J.K. Rowling finished the Harry Potter books, she submitted new mysteries with a pseudonym to see if she was actually good enough to get published on her own merits. Oh. And she was really great. So she publishes under the name Robert Galbraith. I also am a gardener and I am a fanatic about like sustainability and food co-ops and things like that. Susan, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been illuminating and I hope very, very helpful to all of our listeners. I know you have a Twitter account. Would you be willing to share your handle in case anyone wants to tweet at you or follow you? Sure. It's Susan Deborah Bloom. So Susan, S-U-S-A-N, Deborah, D-E-B-R-A, and Bloom, B-L-U-M. Chris, how can folks get a hold of you? I'm at Chris underscore L-Y. And Kara, you're on Twitter, aren't you? I am. I am at Kara Akabak. We have been the Sausage of Science. A huge thank you to our producer, Caroline Owens. And also a big thank you to the Human Biology Association for supporting us and to the American Journal of Human Biology for their support. And thank you all for listening. Thank you, Susan. Thank you.